You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon this morning continues in the parables, excuse me, that we've been looking at together, this time from Matthew chapter 13, just a handful of verses, two itty-bitty parables together, Matthew 13, 44 to 46, follow along as I read. These are the words of Christ, by the way. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Appreciate you. The last time I was up here, I preached for a little over an hour. I'm going to try not to do that this time, but if I do, you can thank thank Heather. We were talking before the service. She said, that was the first sermon I ever heard you preached. I loved every minute of it. So if I do, in fact, preach an hour, hopefully I won't, but if I do, hopefully it will be okay. Um... So this is, a, um, this is a far cry in length also from the last sermon that I preached. I cover eight chapters. Last time, this time I have three verses. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to look at um, the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then just encouraging that with us, uh, encouraging us with that. So uh, I'm going to pray real quick and then we will... We will dive in. Dear Lord, um, we thank you for, the, for today, and um, as Nate um, said so truthfully, um, we don't always come to worship. We don't always um, wake up each day. We don't always go to small group. We don't always um, do things in a way where we say, yes, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. Yes, it is my joy to lay down my life today for your sake. Um, but Father, help us uh, just by looking at your word today and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to just see that what we have in you is worth everything. And what we have in you is, in fact, worth giving up everything for. And so, Father, I pray uh, just for us to see those objective realities, but also, Father, just work those realities into our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus, for the fact that he is the one who gave us these words. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right. Um, So one of the things that Micah, my sweet wife, and I enjoy doing together is watching movies. Um, We... Uh, that's one of the ways that we like wind down for the day. We enjoy relaxing. It's a bonding experience uh, for us. So we enjoy doing that together. Um, 
and just kind of in thinking about that, there's always like some type of movie, like if you see it come on, like if you just happen to be flipping through the channels, like there's a movie you always kind of just like, it catches you like that, I gotta watch it. Like there's just that one movie um, or there might be several that just kind of catch your attention. You're like, yes, that is a fun, that is a good movie to watch. I'm just going to turn it on. I don't have to make any more decisions. Um, so for me, I have several. Most of them are Harry Potter related, but I do have one that kind of rises to the top, and that is the original Pirates of the Caribbean. It is just like one of the funnest movies that I can think of. And just like every time I see it, I'm just like, done. Every time. Um, so while I was preparing for this sermon, uh, it, was, uh, it was a reminder of a specific scene in that movie where, like, um, where Will has just busted Jack Sparrow out of prison because he's like, Elizabeth's been taken, I have to go get her, I know this guy seems to know something, I want to bust him out of prison. So they bust him out of prison, they're trying to figure out how to steal a ship, and Jack's like coming up with some crazy, weird plan in his head about how they're going to steal a ship, and so he just to make sure he and Will are on the same page, he turns to Will and he says, how far would you go to save this girl? And without missing a beat, Will just immediately says, I would die for her. And like that response kind of catches Jack Sparrow off guard because like he was thinking he would have to do some convincing, like kind of nudge him along a little bit. But he was just kind of like, if you think about his response in the movie, it's just like, huh, well, alrighty then. And then, like, there's nothing else needed. He knows that he doesn't have any more work to do to make him, to make Will go along with his crazy plan because um, he raised the question of value. And Will said, I consider the fact that I would even give my life to save this girl. So it's like nothing else even matters. He would do anything. Um, so as I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I enjoyed thinking about that particular scene because a similar question is kind of being posed to us today, just as we look at um, just this two-parable set, and it's how valuable is the kingdom of heaven, and how valuable is the kingdom of heaven to us? What would we give to belong to this kingdom? Um, so my argument and our main idea, just as we look at this text, my title being um, a king and kingdom worth treasuring, but the main idea is that the kingdom of heaven is infinitely valuable because its king is infinitely valuable. And therefore, we should value the king and his kingdom above all other things. So that's my main idea. That's what we're looking. So I only have two points today. Um, the first is that we consider the objective value of the kingdom, that it is infinitely valuable. And then the subjective value of the kingdom, which corresponds to the second part, that we value the king and the kingdom above all other things. Um, so I'm going to read it real quick, um, just once again for us. Again, um, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. So, um, the first thing that I'll point out here um, is just the objective value of the kingdom. And so, if you'll notice in the two parables, 
the kingdom of heaven is considered something that has intrinsic or objective value. It is something valuable. So the first kind of picture is like a treasure in a field. A man goes, he finds the treasure, he buries it, and then he goes and sells everything and buys it. So that made me think of when I was uh, graduating fifth grade from Colin Ferry Elementary in Oconee County, Georgia, that we were the first class to go all the way through uh, Colin Ferry. It was a new elementary school. So one of the things that our administration decided they want to do is create a time capsule that we were going to put stuff in and, like, dig it up, what, 20, 30 years later or something. I don't remember the exact time frame. But it was just going to be a reminder of, like, this was from the first class that ever came all the way through this school. So I think the, the time came to actually dig it up, and there was a little article in the newspaper about it that they dug it up and it wasn't sealed correctly. So like everything inside this time capsule was completely ruined. Half the stuff in there, no one even knew what it originally was. It was just gone. It was worthless, absolutely worthless. This is not, this is not like that time capsule. When this man finds this treasure, he would do what anyone else would have done had they found the same treasure. He would have buried it and sold everything to go buy it. It is objectively valuable. It is a treasure, not just in the minds of whatever fifth grader buried a tomcat soul, but anyone would have considered this thing of immense value. And then the next parable describes a pearl of great price that a merchant found and then him being a merchant of fine pearls, knows what a priceless pearl is. He knows when he's found the one, and then he goes and sells everything he has and, bought and buys it. So it is worth buying for a price, objectively speaking. Um, it is a valuable pearl. Um, so as we are looking at this, um, the questions we have to ask here and the questions that the disciples are being asked is, what is valuable and why is it valuable? So the what question is pretty straightforward. We've already kind of talked about it, is the kingdom of heaven is what is valuable here. It's very clear on display in the text, kingdom of heaven. But a kingdom doesn't exist without a king. So if you're going to esteem the kingdom of heaven of high value, you have to esteem its king of high value as well. So that's two things, the king of heaven and the kingdom of heaven. Those are what are being considered objectively, immensely, infinitely valuable. The second question is, and the thing that I'm going to unpack with us today is why. Why is that kingdom, why is that king worth everything? Why is it valuable? So the first thing that we'll look at is the actual king of heaven, because it's someone telling us about that kingdom, and that person is Jesus. He is coming, and Matthew says earlier, uh, as he begins his ministry, he goes about, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. So this is a message that he is proclaiming. And in the Bible, especially in regards to what the disciples would have seen, what their background would be is, well, Israel used to be a kingdom. It used to be ruled by a king centuries ago. And uh, it was under Roman rule at that point in time, but it would have called to mind specifically the idea of the kingdom of Israel. And that king, in that kingdom, was designed to emulate God's reign over his people. There was, a, there was supposed to be a connection. You look at the king of Israel, you're supposed to see the, the good reign of the God who is king over Israel. And so if you go back and read through 1 Samuel all the way through the end of 2 Chronicles, you will see faithful and unfaithful kings uh, who ruled over that Israelite nation 
And basically what you'll find is that the kings who were faithful to the Lord generally established a, pe- a period of peace and prosperity for the kingdom in a way that the worth of the kingdom increased materially. So there were, like, there were ways in which God in his plan designed the kingdom to either go good or go, go bad based on the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of their king. Their value as a kingdom would increase, would go up or go down, depending on their faithfulness. And so when you read, of course, in of, of unfaithful kings, which there were many, <laughs> by the way, um, you will read generally of God's judgment on them to decrease their material worth, have, it, have them defeated and even conquered by other nations, and have their wealth stripped away. So when Jesus Christ discloses the kingdom of heaven in this parable, he's calling to mind a direct comparison between how that kingdom operated and the fact that he is declaring that a new kingdom is at hand, not an earthly kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And the fact that he is the one proclaiming that is the fact that he is setting himself up as king over God's kingdom. And he is infinitely faithful. Again, think about how Israel's kings and Israel's kingdom could go, could go well or could go not well depending on their faithfulness, but he is the infinitely faithful one. And so because of that, his kingdom is worth an infinite value. It has infinite worth. But the question is at this point, because Jesus is kind of new on the scene, this is kind of new teaching, how do we know that Jesus is that king? And how do we know that he has more worth than any other king? Well, just from this book, uh, it's clear that God the Father himself declares Jesus as his son and delights in him. So Jesus is valuable in the eyes of his father. And that's in Matthew three sixteen through 17, where it says, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and then the heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we know that God esteems Jesus infinitely. So that should tell us something about who this Jesus is. And then if we even look a little bit earlier in this chapter, in in just a previous parable, then we see that Jesus also refers to himself as the son, but he uses the term son of man, which is slightly different. But again, that would have been something that would have been in the disciples' mind as they consider this parable. So the term Son of Man comes from Daniel, uh, a book that the disciples would have been familiar with, but where the Son of Man originally comes from. And so as we look at Daniel 17, 7, 13 through 14, here's what it says. Daniel writes, I continued watching in the nights, in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was escorted before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So again, the Son of Man is a king. Like when Jesus says Son of Man, in your mind, king. Son of Man, king. Like, that's what that means. And he is one who is given authority to rule. He is given glory. He is given a kingdom of every people, nation, and language to serve him. And that kingdom is one that has no end. It is everlasting. 
So when Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom of heaven and referring to himself as the son of man, he's saying this is here. I am here. The one that was being talked about here, I am here. I'm establishing and building this kingdom, and it is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And every and people from every nation and language are going to serve me as with, with me as their king. And that's how it's going to be. And that passage specifically also forms the background for Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Son is heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe, and he's not just a son of man. He's not just a man. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. So when you see Jesus, you see God. Like that's the argument here. So Jesus as king is not just a man who was given authority. He was God himself who has authority as the one who has created all things. He is the ruler over all things, and he is coming to establish his kingdom here on the earth. And so what's the main takeaway? What's the main takeaway here? That there literally is no one greater. There is no one greater than Jesus Christ. He is the king over all things. He is the son of God, the creator, sustainer, and ruler over all things, and there is no one or nowhere outside of his rule. He's not just a good man, as some people will say. He's not just a good teacher saying nice things about loving others, even though he does do that. He is God. He is God. He is the ruler of a kingdom. And so when he preaches about the kingdom of heaven, as he does throughout the parables and throughout the gospels, he is proclaiming himself as the king of that kingdom. So Jesus is this king. When he says the kingdom of heaven is near, he says, I am near as its king. And so because that king has infinite value, as the Bible so clearly lays out, the kingdom where he reigns also has infinite value. And be, this is because the king establishes a way of life among his kingdom, which is going to portray his greatness to other nations. That's how kingdoms work. Again, if you think back to the Old Testament, the life of the people of Israel was designed to show God's infinite worth to other nations. They were designed to be a light to the nations. And they would do that specifically because God put his throne room literally in the midst of Israel. We saw that. We just got done with Exodus. We saw in the tabernacle that God's most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant sitting inside him is basically an exact replica of God's throne room and his throne where God himself was enthroned among his people. And then he doesn't just put himself in the middle of his people, he actually gives them a way of life to have them show that he is their king. And we get that in the law. 
And the law can be summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus will say that later in Matthew as that is the sum of the law and the prophets. So there's a way of life associated with that, with that king that his subjects are intended to follow. And that is to love him with everything and to love others with everything as well. And so specifically here, as we think back to the Old Testament, that the people of Israel, their prosperity would rise and fall on their faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Again, if Israel was faithful to God, that God had in his plan at that point to materially bless his people with wealth, with prosperity, with things like rain, with crops, with livestock, with gold, silver, like all those things God said, I will bless you with this because it testifies to his rule and reign to the nations. It's not just for the prosperity of the people, but it's so others can see that that's who their God is. But then again, when the people were unfaithful to God, they had those things stripped away. They were conquered, they lost their wealth, and they were even exiled to other nations, to other places where God's dwelling place was not, where the temple was not at that point in time. They, were, they had that taken away by having them removed physically from that place where God had said, this is my dwelling place. So when Jesus comes to reveal the kingdom of heaven, he's establishing a way of life for the members of his kingdom to display his own infinite worth and to do so out of love for him and love for each other. And we actually see what this kingdom life looks like. like. That's such good news. Like God doesn't just say, I want you to, to worship me as your king. I want you to obey me as your king, but then doesn't, and then, then kind of just leaves it there. He actually shows you what that type of life looks like. And so we actually see that in Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We're all very well acquainted with it for the most part. But there's intrinsic value in the way that that life is lived, in a way that exhibits Jesus as your king. And we know that because Matthew 16, 19 through 21 says to collect treasure in heaven, which cannot be stolen, rust cannot destroy, because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And then four other times in that sermon, he actually says that there is reward for those who follow the way of life that he is depicting and who treasure that, treasure that way of life, treasure that kingdom life aspect of what he's saying. So instead of an earthly kingdom now, where if we look to Israel's past, we see material blessing coming because of obedience and faithfulness, we now see that there is a greater reward than those things in the kingdom of heaven, that the heavenly kingdom displays infinitely better and more valuable heavenly treasures and does, the, does that for the sake of the world and calls them to be a part of that kingdom. So I just want to, I want to go through the Beatitudes real quick because I want you to listen to the way that Jesus talks about the people of the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to start in, in Matthew 5, verse 3, and it says, The poor in spirit are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. 
The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. And the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, because of the king. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Again, there's that reward language there. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that is, that is the blessing for those types of people, those who, who are humble in spirit, those who are gentle and meek, who experience sorrow because of the, the way of life that they lead in the face of a world that doesn't understand that, those who are pure in heart, those who make peace. Like That is the blessed life. That is the good life. Unless we get it confused with material blessing, if we look at that word blessed, it's actually an exact translation of the Hebrew word that we see is intended to, to mean like happy. And we can see that specifically in Psalm 1, 1 through 3, which states, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. His delight is not in material wealth, not in material prosperity, but in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So there is a blessed, happy, whole, complete, rich way of life that displays a spiritual richness far beyond what any type of material richness can offer. That's the message of the kingdom of heaven. That with Jesus as your king, the life that you were created to live is accessible to you. The, the, the good life, the flourishing life, the life that's completely centered and found holy in Christ is available to you. And it's only available through Jesus, through him. But notice as well, just as you listen to that Beatitudes, it's not a bunch of like you who's or like singular statements. It's plural statements. It's those who's. So it's not a life lived in singular either. It's a life in plural. It's a life intended to be lived as a community as the kingdom of God. So the value of the kingdom is also tied in not just in its king, but also in the people who make it up. Like, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, like that also exists for us as God's people because we are each considered valuable in God's kingdom. Like, yes, we are all inherently valuable as people, but the value of the kingdom also lies in those who make up the kingdom. And so we are intended to pursue the kingdom life together. It's not something we do individually. It's not something that we can just rely on ourselves to do individually either, but that's part of how our life together as a church, as a community of faith, like this life, this life is incomplete without each other. So there is value in what we do here each and every week, what we do together as a church to reach out to other people, to offer them the kingdom. Those are things we're intended to do together. We're intended to be in each other's lives we're intended to, to know each other's needs and pray for them and, and meet those needs physically if need be. 
Like that's the way the kingdom life is intended to be lived because together we experience that rich, whole, complete way of life that God intends us to have. That's good news. That's good news. We are not alone in this. We are here together doing this. But I also just want to make it clear that it's also available only through Jesus. Because if you look at the surrounding parables around this one, you have the wheat and the weeds and you have the net and the fish. It's very clear. If you don't worship Jesus as your king, there are consequences. There are consequences that if you worship Jesus as your king and obey him, you are considered righteous. But for those who don't, they are considered sons of the evil one is actually one of the phrases there. And that they are even considered evil themselves. And then they are cast out because of, their, because of their sinfulness, because of their unrighteousness, because they don't worship the true king. And again, yes, that's a warning for us to hear, like here right now, because again, like we want to be worshiping the true king. We want to be worshiping Jesus, the God of the Bible, and we want to be following in the way of life that he calls us to live. But there's also a hope, because the good news is that people who are evil— People who are sons of the evil one can be part of this kingdom. So Ephesians 1 through 3 states that all people, everyone on earth, are dead in trespasses and sins under the kingdom and authority of Satan and living according to our own desires and inclinations and therefore are under judgment. But because God is rich in mercy and grace, here's what Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says. It says that he, that is God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So that for those who worship the king through faith, we're taken out of that kingdom of darkness and put inside the kingdom of the Son of the one whom he loves. And again, that's a... That is because of God's mercy and grace that he redeems and offers redemption through the blood of his own sacrifice. And he pays the penalty for our sin. But he also doesn't just take away sin. He also gives us the spirit. He gives us eternal life. And what is that life? Well, we just saw it. He gives us an entirely new life to be lived that is centered around worshiping and obeying him. And we see that that is a rich, infinitely valuable life to live. He rose again to life. That's what the resurrection, that's what the resurrection is intended to convey. Like, yes, sins have been forgiven. Your debt's been taken away. But you've also been given something in addition to that. You've been given a rich life to be lived for the sake of Jesus. And so if you're a Christian here today, this is what God has done. This is what God has done for each and every one of us individually and then together as a community. You have everything because you have him. Like that is the objective reality of what it looks like to belong to Christ. And it's that way whether you feel like it or not. And that's a huge encouragement because like we've said, there's some days where we come, we're not feeling it. Like the song lyrics come hard some days. And it feels like you don't want to sing at all. But again, this is the objective reality of what it means to belong to God's kingdom. 
is that he has given you a way to follow him. He has given you something that can never be taken from you. And it allows you to find joy and purpose and identity in him, even in the midst of a ton of things that would otherwise make you feel like you're being pulled away. Things like anxieties, uncertainties, suffering, sorrow. Those things, as we see, those who are mourned are blessed, for they will be comforted. We can experience the full and true life that we're intended to have in God even through those things. God can design those things even to, even to bring us to himself, to make us see that he is our king. And so, this is also like, this is what we offer to the world. This is what we offer to the world in the midst of when it seems like someplace, some type of person is getting shot up every single week. Like, we were at a July 4th celebration. We read about a July 4th parade in Chicago where some dude just opened fire and killed like a half dozen people, injured dozens more. Like, the world needs to know that there is life and hope, even in the midst, even through suffering and sorrow like that. Like, we have a hope, an eternal hope in Christ that can be offered to them. So that's so important for our mission together as a church, is that we're not just telling people, yes, you can be saved from your sins, that's important, but there is a life to be lived, a life that you can offer to people and say, this is, this is the life of pursuing God, and you can find completeness and wholeness in this. And it's still incomplete at this point in time, though. But we also trust in that day where it's no longer the case. And that's the continual hope that we offer, the eternal hope that we have, because, again, this is eternal life. So there is a point in time where, yes, our sinful earthly lives will be ending, but there is life forevermore with him at his side. Forevermore. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's what Daniel 7 says. And it has no end. And for those who belong to that kingdom, it's the same way for us too. It is an everlasting portion, an inheritance that we have forever with the Lord. And so because of that, we can, we can look at sorrow, we can look at suffering, we can look at uncertainty and anxiety and every single thing that seems like it can take away our joy in this world, and we can still have joy. So what we offer to people is the fact that there is nothing better than this. There is nothing better than this king. There is nothing better than this kingdom. So as we transition, up till now we've looked at the parables from the standpoint of the objective value of the king and his kingdom. But that's not all that's going on in this parable because there's also a response that both the man in the field have and that the merchant of the priceless pearl have. And so this gets the other extremely important aspect of this parable is that though the king and kingdom may be objectively, intrinsically valuable, it has to be something that's realized. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to realize or notice it in order to consider it worth giving everything for. There has to be a subjective response or response that says, I recognize this is valuable and I will give everything to have this. And we've already touched on some of this, but we're not going to take something that we don't recognize as valuable. We're just not going to do it. 
Because we've already seen that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, you can treasure all kinds of things. You don't have to treasure this kingdom. But if that's where your heart is, you will treasure it forever. And we see that. We see that with the man in the field. Because the man who bought the field after finding the treasure has one specific overwhelming response. And that is joy. It is his joy to give up everything for the sake of possessing that treasure, that treasure that he found. And similarly, the merchant who searches for pearls finds one which is, proce- which is priceless and considers it of fair value to, to sell everything he has, whatever other fine pearls he has happened to possess. He considers it, we've already seen it, he considers it, he considers them as lost for the sake of possessing this one great priceless pearl that he has found. And so he gives everything for it. It doesn't matter if he's been profiting off of finding pearls cheaply and selling them expensively, any and all that. He buys this one pearl, and he has nothing left. He just has the pearl, and that's enough. And that's enough. But I love his response because the emotion of joy isn't stated explicitly the way it is with the man in the field, even though you can kind of see it, but there is also like a sense of deliberation and determination there too. Like you can see, like you can kind of sense like the leap in his heart as he comes across the pearl. And then specifically like he places his eyes on it and then he considers its value and then he makes the decision. I will sell everything I have to buy this. And the truth is we're all looking for something valuable. We all value things, and we all look for things that provide value. We want to know what can give us fulfillment and peace and security and happiness. And I love this parable because it's a wonderful example of the different ways you can find what you're looking for. You can be like the man in the field where you're not really looking for it. But when you stumble upon it, it's, it's a surprise, but like you immediately know this is something worth having, and you will give everything. But you can also be like the merchant where you might have been a merchant in search of fine pearls. You've been looking. You've been in search. And you've found things that can be considered fine, but you haven't found the one thing yet. So you've been diligently searching, and then you find it. So there's different ways to come to, to, come to this point. Um, and I just think that's a wonderful thing because it's, that can be how we operate too when we find when we find this immensely, infinitely valuable thing called Jesus in his kingdom. And so the question that's inherent to the disciples in this and is inherent to us today is, what are you valuing? What are you valuing? What are you looking for? Because what's clear here is that if those things are not Jesus in his kingdom, they are worth giving up. They're worth giving up for the sake of possessing that. Because as we've seen, what's available in it is far superior and far better than anything this world has to offer. And the truth is, we actually don't come to that transaction with anything in and of ourselves. Like, we actually come with debts, not assets. We come with sin. We come with sinfulness. We come with rebellion. And we see the priceless pearl. We can see the treasure, but we don't have anything to give. We have a bunch of stuff. But what do we do? We say we will offer up even ourselves, even of our lives. And that's, that's not enough. 
But again, Jesus' kindness and grace is that because of him, because of who he is and what he has done, he can, he can say, yes, you give me your life, I can give you every, I can give you infinitely more than you ever thought possible. It's not a fair trade. It's not a fair trade. Even, even in our estimation of its value, even if it's infinitely valuable, we still don't have anything to, that can be compared to its value. But Jesus offers it anyway and makes it available. And so as we come to the table today, as we come to take a small piece of bread and a small little cup, um, I just want us to celebrate simply that Christ has given himself. He has given us himself, and he is the richest of all gifts. And that we have him forevermore, and because of that, we have everything that we ever need. We have the priceless pearl. We have the treasure in the field. We have said, Christ, take my life. And he has said, okay, I can give you so much more. I can give you, I can give you the life you've always been looking for. And again, even like the grace in that is that, again, like we don't always have to, like we're, we don't treasure this naturally. But like that's God's kindness. Like he actually can change our hearts and our minds through his Holy Spirit to, to have us desire this. And then he says, yes, I will give it to you. And so like this entire thing is God's grace. It's God's kindness towards us in Christ. So as we get to celebrate that together as a community, let's just be thankful. Be thankful that we are able to have this and then be thankful that we have something to offer to the world. We have this life to offer. So let's take advantage of those opportunities that we have to live out this life, worshiping this king together and offering him freely to those who need it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. Uh, We thank you for the fact that you are of infinite value. You are of infinite worth. And you have given us, you have given us an inheritance with you. As as members of your kingdom, you have given us something that's infinitely worth far more than we could ever have possessed on our own. And so we just thank you for that, Lord. Help us be grateful for that. Lord, work that into our hearts by your help. Help us to treasure you above all other treasures. Help us to treasure your kingdom above all other treasures. And help us, Lord, as we, as we look to the future, to the eternal hope we have, help that, Lord, to sustain us. Give us hope, Lord, because in you there is eternal hope. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit and for for revealing yourself to us through those things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.